everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Coach Chris Borthwick's career has come full circle, bringing him back to a sport that he played as a youth athlete in the UK. After giving up tennis to focus on rugby, Chris later found himself back on the court with the men's and women's teams at Wake Forest University. Now serving as assistant director of sports performance, Chris is catching his stride at the college level after also having coached at FSU and Northwestern State University. Find out what he's learned along the way and some noteworthy differences that he's mentioned about the UK style of strength and conditioning versus the good old fashioned US of A. Here it is, episode 343. Three, two, one. Happy New Year! Now we're supposed to kiss. That's Texas kiss noise, ladies and gentlemen. This is Luke. That's Texas. <laughs> hey. And this is Jean Wellborn. And you're listening to another episode of the, for those episode. who can't episode for those who can't see what I'm doing. I'm jiggling a bobblehead that's talking into a microphone. Uh, hopefully this gets up on YouTube. We're way behind on the backlog. You may see like six episodes drop over the holidays. Um, but Jean Wellborn has finally made an appearance. What do you have to say about that? Nothing. He's John Wellborn's alter ego. Bizarro Wellborn? That's right. Tony Robbins? That's right. Banana hands. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and, and conditioning. Con- ing. Ing. That's a third ing, people. You know, as is tradition, uh, for those co-hosts and featured guests who don't join on Power Athlete Radio, it's an epic burn session. Oh, not really. Yeah. So let's do it, is what I would have said last year, but it's a new year, new me, Tex. Oh, so what's your new tagline? Burn bands on. <laughs> burn bands on? That's not a tagline. No profanity, no burning, ever. Oh, wow. From this moment, we've already recorded the episode, so from this moment on, after this show. For those of you who've watched Watchmen, I perceive time differently than you. (laughs) You absolutely do, right? because you see it as a flat I'm experiencing time now, but I'm, like, it's constant. I'm Dr. Manhattan. Mm, Like, when he's, his powers are nullified by that ring? No, whoa, spoiler alert, dude, what are you, crazy? I'm sorry, listeners. Holy cow. Well, Spoiler alert. watch The Watchmen. Yeah. Who, great, who great watches series. The Watchmen? We do. We do. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have a killer show today. We were talking with, uh, with Chris Borthwick, um, who's a, I guess, kind of like up and coming. What? Essentially an athlete. Making a name for himself in the tennis circuit. Yes. Which McQuilkin, Wellborn, myself, currently are going full bore into paddle sports, which is basically the same as racket sports. And by paddle sports, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking ping pong. We're talking pickleball. Maybe we'll graduate to tennis at some point. I'm in. Yeah, I guess I'm in too. So it's absolutely great conversation. But first, that's right, people. You heard the countdown. You heard it. You heard the kissy noise. It's a new (laughs) year. It's a new you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, I feel like you're not quite the big wholesale change resolutionists, or maybe you are, maybe you just found power athlete. Well, if you're trying to ring in new year, your new year, right? Stop stepping over hundred dollar bills to pick up singles. I think I got that from Stan efforting former podcast step. 
uh, guest. Find a training program that's tailored specific to your goals. And guess who has that? I'd venture to bet we do. Power Athlete. That's right. Head to powerathletehq.com slash training if you're not already following our training programs. Uh, you're going to find yourself a nice little survey there. You just say, hey, which program's right for me? We're going to ask you four questions, maybe two. Depends on your answers. And we're going to push you exactly what we think you should follow that would help you achieve your goals. Join the thousands of athletes that are already digging into our daily training. Right? Written by John, 10-year NFL veteran. He's giving you the, the best of the best of what he's experienced in his career, his, his time performing at the top. Also, if you got a SIGO, we all know the number one rule is you don't coach your SIGO. No. So no, no, let no, no, no. us do the programming for you. That's right. If your SIGO is just sitting there, sitting on the couch like mine, eating bonbons. Your SIDO? <laughs> My SIDO, eating bonbons, watching holiday movies. Like, on Hallmark. Like The Holiday, starring yeah. Jack Black. Whatever. Uh, what? What yeah. movie is that? Oh, uh, the one where he decided to try serious acting. <laughs> <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the time that me and my friends went to go see the new Jack Black movie? No. And walk into The Holiday? No. And completely just, we got a rope of dope. Flip the table. Get out of there. Uh, yeah, if you got a SIGO or maybe a family member that's just lost and they're just following the free workouts that they see on instafame.com, come our way. Come our way. Send them to powerathletehq.com slash training, and we'll put them in the right place. Now what do you want to talk about, Tex? Tennis. Tennis or 11 10, 11, no? No. All right. Rough crowd here, people. Uh, let's get on it. Without further ado... Well, give us some background. Oh, cool. So uh, every year, and this shout out to Jada Mayo, Richmond University strength and conditioning coach for their basketball team, puts on an, uh, an event where he pulls together speakers from his podcast, S Central Virginia Sports Performance. And so last year, he invited Wade's Army to be the titled sponsor. Uh, yeah. So went out there to represent Wade's and had the great opportunity to connect with a lot of coaches based off the, the East Coast, Carolinas, Virginias, and beyond. Mm -hmm. So Christian was one of the coaches, just came up and introduced himself, and we, we had some good conversation. And I explored the, the sport of tennis, always an interest. It's a fascination definition of athleticism at the, the peak, the highest performance mm -hmm. that we get to see during the Wimbledon's. And as a, a f not a follower of the sport, but just an observer of the the top athletes. And, man, we just had some good conversation and took full advantage by connecting for a podcast to share what that sport means from that back end. Because we mm -hmm. know the, the training that goes behind football and our, our sporting experience, lacrosse and all that, that's invested in peak performance. So it was cool to learn that other people are taking those same approaches for tennis yeah for sure so chris borthwick you're gonna hear about his story from over the pond back and forth a few times pretty storied internship as well oh he, uh, yeah he's resume been. or cv but uh yeah guys tune in it's a good one let's do it go let's do it oh i thought no can we get rid of that for the new year let's do it <laughs> go all right well let's just get into it man we were able to connect at, at jay DeMeo's event the seminar Central Virginia Sports Performance, and I'll be linking up there in 2020. Hopefully we can connect in person then. 
So let's let's roll right into it. I know you got some awesomeness going on at Wake Forest, but there's a lot more to who you are. So let's let's start with your journey as an athlete and what led you to become a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, so well, if we take it right, you want to go right the way back to the start? All the way back. All the way back. Okay. So yeah, well, I started off playing rugby, funnily enough. I started I was playing rugby and tennis um, when I was younger, amongst other sports as well. I'm a multi-sport athlete. Um, decided I wanted to go down more of the tennis and rugby routes. I tried doing both maybe as more of a summer sport and a winter sport. Um, eventually decided I just wasn't quite good enough at tennis, so I dropped that and then carried on playing rugby. Um, I actually went to, I went to college. I, I played rugby there. The UK system is slightly different to the US in, in kind of a way that if you play college rugby in the UK, it's not, not quite, it's getting better, but it's not quite as good a level as you play in what we call the national leagues. So the national leagues consist of like professional teams and semi-professional teams and then amateur teams, depending on like, the ladder you're at or the level you're at. So I actually went there and I played, um, played in national one, which is like the third tier of English rugby. So you've got some professional teams in there, a lot of semi-pro teams. So the team I played for was semi-professional. So I played there for maybe three years it was. Um, and that was kind of, I realized during that time that I was actually one of the smaller guys playing in the league. So I kind of realized that I need to do something. As I went to college, I was starting to lift weights anyway. I didn't do it too much when I was in high school, but I had an interest in sport. And then as I went to college, I was like, right, I started lifting weights, kind of got in with a good group of guys there. And then I got into a, like a high performance program as a result of kind of being, I suppose, being one of the, uh, one of the better players within that county or within our kind of state, as you guys would call it. Um, so that put us into a, a high performance program, which offered strength and conditioning services to us. And then within that, I met my, didn't know at the time, good on my mentor, uh, coach Joel Brannigan out of Northumbria University, which is where I was doing my degree. And he, he kind of took me under his wing. I was really keen to kind of learn everything he, he could kind of teach me. And I never missed a session or anything like that. And I think he, I think he saw that. So later on, a, uh, an internship opportunity came up working under him. And this, that was in my, in my second year of university. Uh, so an internship opportunity came on, just, it looked interesting to me. So I, so I applied and, um, I, I got the job, I got the gig and, um, kind of never looked back from there. So that ended up being a two year, two year position for me. He kept me on, um, to go into my second year. And I was very lucky in the fact that that was actually a paid, a paid internship as well. Um, especially back, would it be five, I don't know how many years ago, I mean, now back 2012, that was obviously not a very common thing to have paid internships. I was very lucky to, to be in that position. Um, so yeah, during that time, I actually, I knew as I was starting to enjoy the training part more than the actual performance part necessarily, the playing, that that was a route I wanted to go down. I wanted to go down the strength and conditioning route. Um, so I actually reached out to Florida State University uh, over here in the US. Um, and my sister is a, a tennis player at, at Florida State. Tennis has been a big, kind of missed that part out. The tennis has been a big part of my family. It was obviously both playing and she played at a very good level. She played professionally a little bit as well, as well as, as playing in college. Um, so I kind of used her contact to be able to reach out to some of the strength coaches at Florida State. And I reached out to coach John Jost and um, I got speaking to him and he invited me across and I spent a uh, summer interning with the Olympic sports program, which was pretty cool. 
So during that time, I worked with every Olympic sport, which was great. Just got to kind of throw in the deep end. So I brought that experience back to the UK. Uh, and within that kind of organization that we had at, at Northumbria University, where I was still studying and coaching at the time. Um, so I did my undergrad and master's at Northumbria University. And then from there, I actually moved on to a, a head position, which is quite lucky straight out of school, building that experience up that I had in school. I went into the head of strength conditioning at Radley College, which is a smaller kind of high school, like a private high school in the UK. Um, and I, I ran that program uh, for two years there. We, we had, it was, it was pretty cool actually. You worked with a lot of very kind of low level participation level athletes as well, where just health and well-being was, was more of an issue than actually in that, uh, necessarily, sorry, sports performance. But then on the other end of the spectrum, spectrum we had uh, like British rowing level standards. We had some guys which were performance athletes, obviously the other end of the spectrum, which were participation athletes. We created this pathway where they could go whichever way they wanted, the students and progress from there. And then during that time at Radley College, we got, we had great holidays, great vacation. We had nine weeks off in the summer between terms. That's the dream. <laughs> so uh, during that time, I actually got back in touch um, with Florida State University and actually went back over and this time interned in my, in my free time there with uh, the football team. Whoa. Um, so this was 2000, what was it? This is in 2014, 15 now. So still the Jimbo era. And I actually, um, I got on well with Coach Vic uh, Valoria, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, anyway, I, I was interned under him for the summer as well. And um, so I got experience the, the football side of things as well, which which was great. And not many people obviously get to experience that from, from a British kind of point of view. Um, so anyway, I came back to came back to the UK, worked back at Rugby College for that year. And then by the end of that, I realized I wanted to try, try and do something else. And, I wanted to, there's experiences at Florida State, I kind of realized I wanted to make the jump to the US, but didn't really know how. I spoke to the guy at Florida State, there was potential of getting a graduate assistantship position there, didn't really work out. So I, I did what a lot of kids these days are doing and, and emailed pretty much every Power 5 school under the sun. And I emailed everyone and only, I think I had three responses. I had only two responses, sorry. Oh, three. I went to, I had a, a talk with the coaches up at Wisconsin. I had an interview at Stanford and I had an interview at Northwestern State University in Louisiana, in a small town of Natchitoches, Louisiana. <laughs> now, I had, as an Englishman coming across, I had no idea what Louisiana was, where it was, or anything <laughs> like that. Right? <laughs> Believe me, that was, a, that was an eye opening experience. <laughs> so, anyway, I, um, I actually, when I came to the end of my kind of career there at Radley College, I actually got offered another position at the head of another private school over there. But I turned it down to go into a graduate assistantship position over in Louisiana, not knowing completely. And I, I can't emphasize this enough as an Englishman. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> um, so anyway, I get I get to Louisiana. It's it's August, kind of roll up, kind of start working with the football team and things like this. Had not much money with me at all, just enough to kind of cover the basics of rent. And I tried to do it off a pretty minimal budget to be honest so for the first three or four months there i was just sleeping on the floor i just i brought my uh, i brought my duvet with me my kind of comforter uh, i put it into my my rucksack or whatever when i brought it with me and i just wrapped myself in that every night and went to sleep and that was kind of me for the first three months i get up at 4 30 in the morning get back around eight nine o'clock at night and just pass out 
and, and that was me for that was me for six months, just kind of learning the trade and how the American system worked and, and things like that. And I, I loved it. I loved it. If I'm honest, I, like I was single over there, so like you could just work every hour of the day and get really involved in the culture, and, and it was great. And you kind of learned what hard what hard work was um, to an extent there. Um, during my time there, I got contacted by Wake Forest University. Um, just to go over and kind of meet their coaches and just because I knew that the assistant coach there, or here should I say, um, he's English. So he kind of just said, oh, do you want to come across and like help us like maybe look at some of our training and stuff like that and tell us what you think. I was like, yeah, sure. Like, why not? Seems like a good opportunity. I went across for a week, came back to Louisiana, didn't really think anything of it. It was a good week. We got out of Louisiana, so it was good. <laughs> um, and then, so then at the end of that, I actually got offered a job come December. I had only been there for around eight months, I actually got offered a job back in the UK um, at the University of Bath. And that included, I was doing lecturing at the University of Bath on the undergraduate uh, strength conditioning program. So I was lecturing there and I was working with kind of international and national level athletes as well. So it was a pretty good balance. You had the education side and the coaching side. So I was really interesting, kind of loved, loved that position. Um, and I, I got into it and then I was, really enjoying it and then Wake Forest come on the line again they're just like hey, hey Chris like we love we think we potentially got a position for you are you interested I was like yeah sure not thinking anything of it I was like I was like sure that, that sounds great you can make it work like definitely something um obviously there's a big visa issue there and it was the time kind of Trump's coming into power and things like that so it's making it really hard for us to get a visa um so no I didn't think much of it and that was in that would have been in October I think Oh no, sorry, that was in that was in March, and then in October they they, they say in October we should, we should be able to get here by October. I'm like, oh okay, uh, we'll see. Anyway, nine months rolls around and that nothing happens. I'm like, oh this this definitely isn't happening. I'm pretty settled and back at this point. I've got a girlfriend and, and things like that. Um, things are going pretty well. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, I get a phone call saying, Chris, like we've got your visa. Can you get on a plane tomorrow? I'm like, oh wow. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. Pretty shocked. My girlfriend's in tears. Like, she, she's just so distraught that I'm potentially leaving her. And then I have to hand my notice in at the University of Bath because I'm like, oh, this is too good of an opportunity to turn down. It's something I've, I've worked for. Um, so, anyway, I jumped on a plane. They gave me a week. I jumped on a plane a week later. <laughs> um, came over to Wake Forest and and the rest is history. I've, I've been here ever since. Luckily, my, my girlfriend managed to get a visa. So she's over here at the moment as well, which obviously helps. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been at Wake Forest now for the last two years, um, working with specifically men and women's tennis. Um, and that's been somehow I'm getting, I'm getting almost typecast into the tennis guy um, from speaking to a few people. Um, and even though I grew up playing rugby and things like that as well, it seems to be going down more of the tennis route now, which, which is great because I think it's definitely a almost a niche to an extent and not many people want to, I don't know why necessarily, but not many people are that interested in working with tennis athletes and they're a very unique bunch of uh, individuals, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So Chris, talk a little bit about your experience traveling from the UK, like your first, your first bout in the States working in the, the strength coach industry. It's one thing we've had Ron McKeefrey on, the the show and he's talked about having you know th- flipping the switch on that right so there's a ton of aspiring strength coaches in the u.s and there's a ton of opportunity outside of the u.s and having traveled quite a bit for uh, our seminar series over the past few years we've had the opportunity to coach in different cultures and it's been uh, 
an absolutely rewarding experience. So I'm curious how, uh, you know, coming up, being mentored within rugby and some of the power sports in the UK and then getting into the States, compare and contrast. What was the, what were the lessons learned? Discipline, first and foremost, I think, coming to the US, everything's very much military-esque, for lack of a better word. It's very much kind of, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it this time, this way, and my way or the highway to an extent. Um, and that's not any reflection necessarily on the program I worked within Louisiana, but that's what I've noticed across the board. Whereas I feel strength and conditioning within the UK is a little bit, it's, a, it's no disrespect to the American system, right? I think it's a little bit more underpinned by science. It's a little bit more laid back in the approach. It's not kind of my way or the highway. There's a little bit more of a, a discussion going on around, around what's happening. Um, and I think that's very much, it kind of came from the, like that culture of being army-led almost, or that military kind of taskmaster. And that you just don't get that as much in the, in the UK. The culture's not as much based around the military. But is that like, is that just a broader cultural thing too because like in the states you know there's like i do feel that some organizations and i'm not gonna i mean let's just i won't pigeonhole the strength like the strength and conditioning industry but a lot of people idolize the hero the the military heroes in the states right and we see this as like an enormous machine that's well oiled and well ran and this top level top down bureaucracy just tends to be effective but i mean I don't think it's better or worse, but do you think that it's it's a could be a product of that? Yeah, for sure. One like one hundred percent. And I think that's actually something I think the UK could take from that is in fact like the way that uh, America kind of idolizes the heroes of war and things like that as well. And your veterans like we do a terrible not necessarily a terrible job, but we don't do as good a job as what the American system does to do that. And that's something we can definitely we could definitely take. Um but that is your kind of a culture of your environment, a product of your environment at the end of the day. And that's kind of what you're brought up in in the US. And it's, it's not so much in the UK, but I think there's definitely pros and cons to both systems. And we could learn, the UK can learn from the US and then vice versa as well. You, <clears throat> you get the opportunity to explore individual athletes. So coaching one-on-one, do you take what you've experienced as a rugby team athlete and then integrate that into the team of tennis, which in itself is an individual sport, but do you take aspects of that you've experienced as an athlete from the value of a team and apply it to those individuals? Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's kind of one of the, the sticking points almost that you get to within, within tennis a little bit, and that's one of the big things I found when I came over here. Essentially, tennis is an individual sport played in a team environment. Now, all I've ever really known in the team environment, playing in rugby, played a lot of tennis, obviously, growing up, but I was more involved in the team environment, and I love the team. Like a lot of us do, we love the team environment, the team aspect of it. So trying to bring that team culture and that camaraderie to an individual sport is very tough because like, you can't really beat around the bush. Tennis players are selfish. They're quite self-centered. They only really care about themselves, and that's because at the end of the day, like, it's a one-on-one battle going on on the court. Right? If you win, you're going to go towards the team, but it's also going to help your ranking. Um, and that's that's no disrespect for any tennis player because you've got that's the way you've got to be if you want to be successful. You've got to kick the crap out of your opponent on the other side of the court. Um, did I try and bring in certain elements of team camaraderie and stuff like that? Yes, one hundred percent. With the backlash, yes, one hundred percent. It's not not always going to be as easy as you think, but there's definitely team elements that we bring. We bring in 
we tried to bring in little huddles and things like that just to get them just to get the guys together and they've accomplished a goal at the end of the session and things like that which even for me as an Englishman kind of getting everyone together and doing that one two three weeks or whatever it is that's that's different for me because we just don't do that in the UK um but then I, I love that over here because it brings everyone together the American kids that we've got on the team love that as well like our, I should say our team's quite international we've got guys from all over Europe in that so that for them is quite foreign um so to get them all together and, and to pull for this kind of same same badge on their chest is is pretty it's pretty special at the end of the day and you you, you can see You've got guys that have been here maybe one or two years and guys that have been here four years. And when you're in kind of a, a final or going deep into a, a tournament and they're all fighting for each other on the court, it's, it's pretty special to see as an American when you guys experience that. Do most of the guys or most of the, the men's and women's teams, do they train together? Or how much like individual one-on-one sessions do you apply to your crew? So practice-wise, there's... They do a lot of individual sessions one-on-one with coaches. Um, but at the same time, we do team practice as well. So obviously, you've got to be able to stay within your allotted hours for whatever time of year you're on the end of the day. Um, but then we do a lot of individual work because it's really hard to work on a, a small technical element when you've got maybe 10, 15 guys on the court as well. Um, so they do that. Within the weight room, I try and do that. We It's tough because we've actually got quite a large team coming, coming this this spring, we're going to have 18 guys in our team, which is quite large for, for a college tennis team. And so I try and split my guys into smaller groups throughout the day. I do some one-on-one work. Um, but if I can get more individualized, kind of smaller sessions, that's definitely more beneficial. Um, the girls on the other side, they, on the other end, they kind of, there's only 10 of them, so they come in as one group. And they're a pretty tight-knit group anyway. And they, they prefer working out together. The girls, and they're all American for the most part, and nine of them are American. Um, so they're kind of used to that culture, that environment. They're, they're a great group to work with. Um, the guys slightly different because of the culture uh, aspect going on there, and a lot of them being from Europe and things like that. They come in in smaller groups uh, and they kind of work throughout the morning. The structure generally works over in two or three groups throughout the morning, and then they've got tennis practice in the afternoon for the most part. And then it's all based on the class schedule. They'll have like individual practice sessions based around the class schedule, and then my waiting session based around the class schedule as well. And um, we'll try and knock out. For the most part, a lot of their, whether we do conditioning or whatever it's going to be, conditioning on weights in the morning to give them ample time to recover before their tennis practice or team practice in the afternoon. What What's the training experience of a tennis player coming into a collegiate program like Wake Forest? You know, do, do they have access to to coach, strength coaches in high school or is it very much or is it a product of specialization early on or both or it varies? Generally a product of specialization early on for the, like, for the most part, generally like tennis players play, uh, play too much and prepare too little. Um, for, the, like, for the most part, they come in, depends on the type of recruit we get. We get some pretty good, if we get a sir coming in, he's probably been with his federation and his national team and they've already kind of developed, developed him physically a little bit. But still, you're dealing with 17, 18, 19-year-old kids at the end of the day. Um, and every time they come in, I, I'll, I'll do my assessments and, and things on them. And we'll find out where their strengths, weaknesses, and, and whatever are. And then we'll kind of we'll go from there. But they're going to be on some sort of freshman program for the first six months. Because uh, I need to know where they're at. Can they hold certain shapes? So I've got guys that can barely hold a body squat position. And I've got other guys that can squat like 100 kilos. 
Um, so you've got huge kind of ranges in the ability of a freshman athlete, obviously, coming in. And that's, and that's the same across pretty much every Olympic sport that you'll see. Um, there's always going to be huge ranges. The tough thing kind of occurs when you see the, the guys coming in, especially from Europe, that aren't as interested maybe in like lifting weights and physical preparation as much as maybe the American kids. Because the European culture is very much like physio or, or trainer-led. And as a result of that, you end up having like rehab tools used in a performance environment. So you get things like therabands and lots of like external rotations, which are a fine exercise, but they're not a performance exercise, they're a rehabilitation exercise. And then as a result of that, you obviously get these kind of low-level strength exercises being used or kids think it's strength work. And they're like, oh, why are we doing this? I didn't do this at home with my kids. And you've got to really, you've got to educate them on kind of the process at the end of the day. And I think we talked about this text that it's at the end of the day, when I get them in from day one to whenever they leave this program, when, whether they're a young two or four year athlete, we've got to be able to educate them on being able to look after themselves, like through the right nutrition and physical development and things like that. Are they getting the right amount of sleep? And I know there's, there's obviously a lot of talk about sleep at the moment, but like, I think the kids get, get tired of me asking them about oh, how much sleep did you get last night? Little things like that. And it's because if they leave our program, especially if they want to be a professional player, which a lot of these kids are, if they want to be a professional player and they don't know how to run their own warm-up, then I haven't done my job at the end of the day. So I think that's the way we're trying to trying to develop the program. I want the guys to take a lead on, on what's going on. Quite often I'll put whiteboard sessions together on the court as well. Um, if once they're, once I, I'm fully confident that the guys on the court are kind of understand how to run their own warm-up, I'll give them a goal they've got to hit within 10 to 15 minutes. So let's just say it's maybe they've got to hit a maximum sprint from the baseline to the net in 10 minutes. What, what's the proper way to prepare your body to be able to hit a maximum like 12 meter sprint in the next 10 minutes? And I'll say, I'll get all the tools out, all the kind of, maybe we've got some bands or whatever it's going to be. I'll give them everything we've used throughout the, the semester and things like that, all the tools that we need to use. I'll like, come up with your own one. You can do it in groups, you can do it individually, it's entirely up to you. But I sit back and I just watch out of the madness, so to speak. Just watch that unfold and see what they can come up with. Sometimes they come up with better stuff than I've got. Hmm. And it's great because I can learn from them and then hopefully they'll learn from me as well. They've learned from me and I can, as they're going around, it gives me the opportunity to, to interact with some of the kids as well and just ask them small things like how's their day going, like how did their, how did their exam go, or even like, what, what do you think about this warm-up exercise? Do you think you can maybe do this bit a little bit different? And just kind of, just ask them and poke them a little bit and see what see what's going on. It, it really gives you a good opportunity to, to interact, but also test, essentially you're testing them and testing myself. Like, did I do a good enough job actually coaching them after coming up after themselves? Yeah, and that's one of the big things that we lean on within our coaches' education is the importance of just setting them free and observing what they do on their own because then it is your test as a coach of what, what you are passing along and the true definition of empower performance or you hand off their performance to them because they're responsible on the court on the field so definitely definitely value that piece um man i'm so ignorant on the the world of tennis are there athletes that are leaving school after a year to go all in with pro to like throw away three years of college oh yeah (laughs) it's not as common as obviously basketball and things like that but it's it's becoming more more common um there is guys doing the four-year deal. We just had a guy that won the national championship um, as a team and an individual. He did the full four years. 
he was getting asked to go and play pro, but he, he stuck for the duration. And um, I think saw the rewards of that. And you've got other kids who come in and think they're good enough to play pro, uh, pro sorry, straight away. And they kind of jump the gun a little bit on it. And they, you maybe get them to college and then they realize, okay, maybe a year or a year or two maybe into their journey that, okay, maybe I do because the biggest, biggest thing, uh, thing within tennis players is, like I said, that they're not physically prepared to meet the demands of the environment they're going to be in. Now, you, you try and travel for maybe 40 weeks of the year, maybe more, uh, on the professional tour, there's no way you're ready to look after yourself as a 17, 18-year-old kid. More than likely traveling with no coaches. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, like if you play there, you're starting out at the bottom end of the, the professional tour. There's no money. You've got to have a good sponsor or rich parents to be able to fund that. You've got to be able to make your way around. Now, more than likely, you don't have loads of money. You don't have rich parents, and so you're not going to be able to afford a coach or the best advice. So you're just trying to make it from tournament to tournament and scrape a little bit of prize money together so you can go to the next tournament and things like that. But you're very lucky if you're breaking even from tournament to tournament. Now, once you start making your way up the rankings a little bit, typically, definitely inside the world's top 100, but if you get towards towards the world's top two and you're doing pretty well, um, and now if you're not if you're not inside the world's five top five hundred, you're probably going to come to college for the most part. Um, and then the guys we try and recruit as a program are generally around that market, maybe five hundred, even a little bit potentially inside that. Um, so we're trying to get these guys that are on the fringe of thinking they're good enough to play pro or potentially being good enough to play pro and then come to college as well. And there's a lot of programs trying to do the trying to do the same thing. But if you can get those guys, then that's going to be that's going to be a huge thing. And they realise that okay, actually, I do need to develop physically quite a lot. And I know John McEnroe. You know, they they've talked about the biggest advantage of playing college tennis is allowing your body to develop physically and mature because you're just not ready for the demands that the, the pro circuit can throw at you essentially. Yeah, and I guess there's a level of maturity as well understanding like that's a that's a lot of travel so there's a lot of opportunity to explore foreign areas you know and go out and and socialize but again like if you don't have cash i don't it's just you're right like there's a level of maturity and it's not just physiological it's kind of psychological right and then it gives you it kind of gives you time to close that gap from being a child to being a a young adult um as well yeah, 100%. And it's like the guys that you're getting at, at 17, like, at the end of the day, they, they think they're men. Mm-hmm. But then, oh, they're just, they're just kids. Yeah, <laughs> man. I mean, you're a younger dude. Uh, I'm 37. Uh, I'm still a kid. Like, like, I don't know anything. And I just think back, yeah. <laughs> we just had an intern who was 23. Um, I wonder if he's going to listen to this. Probably not. Yeah. So we he's, can talk he's about him. He's out. He's checked out. He's a young <laughs> dipshit kid. Like, he doesn't know. And we're, there's oftentimes we were asking a lot of him. Uh, in terms of providing us some self-actualization, feedback back on self-actualization. Who are you? What do you want to do? And I'm just trying to think of like 23-year-old Luke Summers who was like just a a, a stick of dynamite ready to explode at every turn. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it's like, it, but but that's that's part of your job, right? Even as strength coach or as the sport coach is to channel that and let kind of, think of a bowling ball going down an alley with bumpers. Like you guys are kind of the bumpers or we are the bumpers and we're just trying to make sure they hit some pins. Oh, and I'm fascinated with the individual 
sport approach yeah. to this because team like we can make mistakes you can cover for each other or like but get each other's back but then individually hey it's on you so you've you've worked in olympic sports right so the proverbial like that you know your throwers your sprinters is tennis the similar is is it similar in the sense of the individualization or i feel like tennis has a a little more team dynamic to it but I, i'm just kind of making that up based off of my observation of like high school sports i mean tennis does have a, a definitely different dynamic to it for sure um if in the fall there's no team you're not playing for the team or anything like that you're playing for yourself or you're trying to get your own national ranking high enough so you can compete in tournaments like all champs and stuff like that and then that that individual ranking then carries over to the uh, to the spring which is more the team team competition mm -hmm. and team camaraderie um and that's the that's the thing it's it's so tough to, to balance that as well because you've got some guys that really want to be part of a, a team environment and you've got some guys that maybe just a little bit more focused selfishly on themselves and just wanting to go play pro tennis and they know this is just one stop along the way that they're going to do that like you say, you just got to keep them on that straight and narrow and keep nudging them back in the right direction and just keep focusing on, oh, this is the team. Trust my, like, trust the process. You just got to trust what we're doing here and you'll get, you'll go in the right direction. And hopefully, so, like, so far, it's things have been going right. Yeah. And I guess how we keep doing that as well. That's the, the big thing is how we keep, because you can only have that conversation so many times and they've got to start seeing some sort of results. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're just going to lose interest. Yeah. Build the trust get results right and i guess yep. that's the, also the narrative with with the tennis coach right yeah yep the coach is he's exactly like exactly the same you've just got to be kind of so driven especially with such a technical sport like tennis where any sort of adaptations and results can take such a long time to, to get um because like realistically uh, it's so hard for if i look at what i do it's so hard to quantify what i do in such a skill-based sport and that's why some of the things within strength and conditioning haven't been so great because we, we look at kind of simulation instead of stimulation and we never really kind of do anything as a result. We just throw a few medicine balls, we do some parabands and things. It's trying to quantify what we do as a profession. And I know people have talked about this where the cows come home, so to speak, but it's it's really hard to do. And then as, as a, a tennis coach as well, you're trying to do that same thing. You're trying to just say, trust like, trust the process. We've got to go and hit so many balls today. It's got 10,000 hours to an extent. You've got to put in the repetition and then you've got to get those kind of hard skills and then the soft skills down. And then so you can go back to those hard skills as quickly as possible. When you kind of, I don't know, when you're, when you're trying to develop, like, without going too technical and things, you're trying to go into that to create more of a, a fundamental kind of motor pattern within your serve, for example. And you want, as Franz Bosch talks about, those uh, better attractor states that you can kind of sink back into nice quickly. And then obviously you've got your fluctuating states that you're going to change rep to rep. And that's the, that's the things that you've got to be able to do um, as a coach and know how to, how to develop that from maybe a, a task constraint point of view and like what constraints are you going to put on the athlete to enable them to do that? You're almost tricking them into creating these adaptations and creating these progressions through their, through their career without them actually knowing it and while keeping it kind of lighthearted and fun along the way. A lot of different directions to go, but before we go any further, can we paint the picture of competition for a tennis athlete? So three, four-day tournament, how long, one match a day, two matches a day, how long is a match, and what do those performances look like? Are we talking college or pro? Uh, let's, let's start with college and then have compare pros to it. Okay. 
So college athletes, if we look at the spring, so the competitive season, really depends on what your coach schedules. So this year we play, off the top of my head, we play around 42 matches scheduled at the moment. And that's not including going deep into the, the off-season or ACC or, or anything like that. That's not including the, going deep into any, any tournaments. Um, so within that, you've got, you can have anywhere between like one match and two matches per day. You can have a double header scheduled, which may be up to six hours of tennis in one day. Potentially, probably not going to happen uh, that much. Usually a college tennis match is going to last around two and a half hours. If you have a, you've got a double header with a team or you've got a, you've got a match with a team set up, you're probably going to last around two and a half to three hours. The setup is you play a doubles match first. So let's just say there's six guys, you split into three doubles teams. If you, you've got to win two out of three of those doubles team matches to be able to get one point. Then after that, once the doubles is over, you've got six singles matches happening. And then you've got to get, if you win the doubles point, essentially it's first to four. Okay, so if you win the doubles point, you need to win three singles matches to get to four. And then if you get to four, the first team to four wins. So the whole match could last could last around three hours, uh, including the doubles, maybe a, maybe a little bit longer at times, um, depending on kind of the type of opponent and things. If it's, if it's like a three-all match, you're going to go pretty deep into a third and things like that. Um, but yeah, tennis tennis in college is played best of three sets. Um, so obviously, if you've got one all, it's going to go to the third. You're going to play that third set out for the most part, unless the, the coaches have agreed and that you can shorten that third set. Maybe the tie's already over or something like that. But for the most part, you're going to play that out. Um, and yeah, so best of three sets can last around two and a half hours. You're going to cover in that time. If we look at colleges played on uh, hard court, so over in Europe, you've got like clay courts, which are a little bit kind of like a, a sand to an extent. And you can slide on the court a little bit more. Obviously at Wimbledon, we've got grass. And each one of those surfaces has got their own different demands as well. Uh, I'm going to go slightly off subject here a little bit. I just find this, this interesting. Um, we obviously have a lot of European-based players. So when they come to us, quite a lot of those guys have been playing on clay with the lower ground reaction force, they can kind of slide through the shots and things like that a lot more. Now, if they come and play on an American hardcore, the ground reaction force is much higher. As a result, the training loads are going to spike. So what we've got to do is monitor when they come from these predominantly Spanish-speaking countries, they come over to us where there's a lot of play. We've got to manage their training load before they kind of, so we know how to kind of introduce them to, to playing tennis in the American hardcore. We've had guys in the past who've came from only ever playing on clay. And then they all of a sudden come to America, they're playing hardcore and they're injured for the first six months of their And you've just got to, and that's something that I've got better at understanding the actual demands of the different, the different court surfaces as well. And if you speak to guys like professionals that play at Wimbledon and on the grass, typically you see a lot more like eccentric muscle damage, a lot of muscle soreness from the, from the grass. Because you've got to use your muscles to decelerate. Whereas when you're on the hardcore, it's a lot more tendon driven, in my opinion. And you're a lot more explosive kind of jumping around the court. Hence why a lot more, up to 75% more injuries occur when hard courts as a result of that. So that's something you really got to understand as a, a sports performance coach working within tennis, how you're actually going to account for those increases in training loads and then the increased ground reaction forces and potential injuries. Obviously, the ball is going to travel a lot quicker on a hard court as well. You've got to be able to, uh, be able to adapt to that. Um, so, so how do you, so like tactically, how do you, 
how do you adjust the training for those European athletes coming in? So we just got to essentially it's just we just cut the volume back a little bit more. We can cut the volume back slightly and then slowly just uh, slowly increase it over time. Nothing too fancy to be honest. It's more about what we do off the court and getting their understanding and things like that. We, we've got to potentially reinforce the adductors and things like that a little bit more, give it add a bit more resiliency and robustness to the smaller muscles that probably haven't done too much work in the past. And especially especially the tendons and, and things like that. That's where we started this year, especially we started doing a lot of long duration isometrics. And that's something that's made quite a big difference. Just having that time of attention, sitting in these pokey positions, right, trying to get to, to an extent some sort of um, like tennis-specific, uh, for lack of a better word, um, position where you can really focus on actually what, what's happening here. You've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable in this position and then drive the adaptation that way as well. And then once we can once we can do that, then I'm pretty happy that these guys can go out and call for, for three hours and things like that. And that's that's one of the big things really is understanding, okay, and the guys ask me, oh, why do we sit in a split squat for like two minutes or whatever it's going to be? And that's pretty hard to get by in. <laughs> Sitting in a split squat for a few minutes, and it's I just tell them it's just part of our kind of resiliency robustness. And my saying to them is and they hate it, like time and attention means injury attention. And that's what I just throw at them all the time. And now they're saying it as well. And if they're taking kind of a mickey out of me saying that sort of stuff, I'm like, we've got it, that's fine. So that's kind of, that's the main thing, just getting them to understand the difference of going from surface to surface, making sure that we warm up properly. Because when they come here, they're not really prepared for that. And, and they, they're obviously very excited. It's college, they want to impress the coach. We've just got to pull them back just a little bit, unfortunately. We've just got to put the brakes on a little bit, just so they don't get too carried away. And it's pretty hard. It can be pretty hard to the coaches out as well. But, oh, you've just got your brand new recruit and you're really excited to see him play. And here's the sports performance coaches saying, oh, can we just, can we just put the brakes on a little bit? And it, that's tough for me to do that because I want to see the guys play as well. Um, but we had a kick come in last spring and we did exactly that. Mm -hmm. He was just fully developed to an extent and he had previous, one or two previous injuries that I knew about when he came in and did a screen. So we just pulled him back, reduced his volume by about 50% initially. We pulled his volume back by about 50% initially. And then, um, yeah, we actually managed him. He ended up going all the way through healthy, didn't get injured for the rest of the season and, and started in the NCAA final. Sweet. So we've yeah, laid, so we laid the baseline for the college game. Now, now how's it transition and change for the pros? You said 40, potentially 40 competitions a year? Mm -hmm. Well, that's just, for me, that's just in the spring. So that's what we're looking at this year. So my top guys, my top guys last year played 54 matches. So my guys last year played 54 matches because we went deep into, we made the final of NCAAs, we made the final of Oregon ACCs. We played a lot of matches, we played quite a tough conference schedule as well. There's a lot of traveling there. Um, my, a few of my other guys played 51 and 53 matches. Typically in a pro game, you're looking to see around 45 matches. 45 matches a year in the pro game. Bearing in mind, the first competition is the Brisbane International, I think it is, on the 3rd of January every year. So it starts down in Australia, and then you go on this world tour that takes you up to the ATP finals, which are happening, I've just finished really the end of November, kind of middle of November. That's a long old season. You're getting about six weeks-ish off, which isn't really a lot of time to... Build the, build the base, so to speak, to get to get ready to go again. Um, I'd say 45, that's pretty much an average. 45 is an average there. You've got some guys who, like Medvedev, who played 
when I collected some data for a, a presentation I was doing um, a month ago, he played 71 matches up, up to the 30th of the, uh, September. 71 matches at the, uh, the end of September. That's ridiculous. So then what does it, can you extrapolate distance traveled or steps taken? Like what, what other, what other metrics are, are monitored in tennis in that so playing sport? We know from, we know general, general information. Um, I can kind of spit some of that data at you, but honestly, like the data collection in tennis is pretty terrible. There's no, there's no kind of capital or anything like that. There's only, as far as I know, I think there's three players in the world using capital. Now, Andy Murray is one of those, and he's been out of commission for the last 12 months. <laughs> so the data is few and far between. Generally speaking, though, if we look at, it's obviously, it depends massively on game style. So it's really hard to say, oh, a tennis, a tennis player could be this distance um, all the time because a certain type of game style, so if we've got someone that's a defensive baseliner, he's going to sit further behind the baseline and he's going to run side to side much more than he is, uh, than a kind of an offensive baseliner is or a, like a servant volleyer. I don't it know sounds, does that make any sense here? It does. Yeah. Want to know why? Because me and McQuilkin don't play tennis. We play <laughs> pickleball. And McQuilkin's a defensive baseliner. Oh, I'm, I'm dominating. My change of direction, but then my close game, terrible. Right. So I, if I, that, I've got to stay back there, but I've got the accuracy you to need nail that time. Those. You need that time to think. No, I have accuracy. He's play, he plays like 20 <laughs> feet behind the baseline. I play to my strengths. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, no, but aerobic, aerobic development is paying off for you there. There it is. <laughs> Where I'm just too, like, I get too tired too easy, so I go up closer. Just finish it. Less, finish it when you can. <laughs> yeah. But no, sorry to cut you off, man. It does make sense on that. So, it, so it's not really practical. Like, th there's no usable info, right? Like, there isn't. There isn't. There isn't. Like, we know one or two of our guys. Typically, uh, one of our shorter guys, for example, he's not going to have a big serve. If you don't have a big serve, you're not going to be able to impose in the rally straight away. So you're going to have to get three, four, maybe six balls into a rally before you can actually properly start competing and get on the offense. And as a result, if you're not having to play six shots before you've even got 50% chance of winning a point, for example, you're going to cover a lot more distance. Mm -hmm. We know typically players will cover around 2,500 meters per match on a hard court. That goes up to around 3,300-ish on a clay court. Um, just because you sit further back, obviously the ball's, the ball's slower, so you've got more time, and you can obviously so you're going to run further. Um, but yeah, players like that, who's got to sit a little bit further back and just got to purely make balls just to give himself a chance in the, in the, in the valley, is that's obviously going to, his fitness levels and conditioning levels are going to have to be so much higher than someone who is, you don't see many of these players anymore, but maybe a serving ball for like a sampress or something like that. So big serve, uh, Russian net. So his physical qualities are going to be based around like elastic power, linear speed. All right, so we're going to have to be able to produce a huge output Rush the net. So what's our what's our ten yard swing looking like? That kind of maybe the KPI deceleration qualities, and then we've got perception reaction of the net to put the ball away. That's a completely different athlete we are dealing with compared to someone that's a, a baseliner who's going to have to hit four balls to get into a rally. He's going to have to serve hit four balls and then just survive to the next four, survive to the next end, to the next four before he can start imposing himself. So 
So there's, you've got two ends of the spectrum in terms of the, the type of athlete you're dealing with that. And then everything in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so I know Wake Forest Yeller powerhouse within the, the sport in the community. Have, have other schools leaned on their sports performance coach as much as Wake has? Are there other schools out there that are doing the same thing, or is it just assigning an intern to the tennis team because they care more about the other sports, you know? A l- little bit of both. A little bit of both. Um, we find it now. Like we've had a couple of like one or two calls from other schools to see kind of what we do and things like that. Um, and there's, there's no secrets, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, so typically within tennis and especially the collegiate setting, you do get the intern or the graduate assistant that gets kind of bundled with men and women's tennis or one or the other. And um, it's, I think it's a great opportunity for that intern or, or graduate assistant because you get to obviously put your, your spin on the team. And I don't know, unfortunately, it's maybe looked down upon that it's, it's only tennis. That could be a the negative kind of connotation you see with that. Oh, it's just tennis, it's fine. They don't maybe have all these like physical demands that are important. If you potentially if you mess up, it doesn't matter. But unfortunately, they're still they're still humans and they're still athletes. And if you mess up, it, it does matter, but it's going to affect them one way or the other. But that is typically what you do see. There is becoming a few more positions. I'm not going to say it's going down the, uh, the football or basketball route by, by any means, but it's there is becoming one or two programs now that are starting to see the benefits of having someone just for tennis. Um, so you can spend more time with the team, travel with the team, and things like that. And that is, there is obviously going to be benefits to that, uh, and there is a few schools starting to go down that route. What 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 are some Let's say we're some of our listeners here are either that you know they're parents of aspiring tennis prodigies, or they themselves uh, are younger athletes looking to up their tennis game. Maybe it's pickleball. Their uh, racket, sp- their racket <laughs> sport game, ping pong, yeah, mm-hmm. paddle racket sports. What what are, what mistakes are young athletes potentially making? I mean, it it sounds like the majority of the folks who are coming in young athletes that are coming in develop a level of competency through early specialization. And there's, you know, that that's becoming a negative connotation now for, for some sports, but is that just the way it is for tennis? Or do you think that kind of a loaded question here? So I expect you to just kind of go wherever you want with it. Or do you anticipate that there's going to be late adoption to tennis or you're going to see multi-sport athletes come into the tennis circuit uh, as let's say like our contact sports become to get become vilified, right? Because it really, man, if uh, the sport itself, it's so much fun. Yeah. And it's like (laughs) for us, you know, us power athlete, um, it's like a, a huge expression of power. Like it can be right. You're working within this small box, you're nonlinear multi-planar, you could get a big, powerful serve out of it. Like, I guess, so going back to it, do you anticipate the, the development of young tennis athletes to change over the next couple of years out of the specialization space? I'd love it to. I'd love, I think they need a much more rounded approach. Um, like my, if I use my sister as an example, she, she didn't specialize. She's played however many sports, loads of sports through high school. Uh, and then only started really taking tennis a little bit more seriously around the age of, 13, I think it was, and then kind of dropped off one one sport per year kind of after that, to an extent. 
And as a result, you get a very good, as we know, rounded skill set. But now you're seeing more and more kids come through the system, and that's tennis is all they've ever known. And that's not necessarily a good thing. And that's probably because uh, they obviously want, they're obviously interested in tennis, but kids are trying to put, uh, sorry, kids' parents are trying to push them down that route as well, saying, oh, we need to do more of this, we need to do more of this. And like you hear it from, from coaches as well, oh, you need to play more and more tennis. And it's, yes, I, I agree, you do need to play tennis to be good at tennis, funnily enough. But at the end of the day, when you're young, you need to take advantage of molding those other motor skills that you can develop as well. Because if you're just there looking at small ball coming up and down the court and moving around, you're developing so many like, asymmetries and things like that, and you're only going to be good necessarily in one area. And then that lack of a teamwork or a team environment as well, like we talked about earlier, you, you see some of the kids that actually love being part of the team things. And I, I've spoken to many college athletes that when they've left college, like what was the best part about playing tennis in college? You know, every time it's like, be part of the team, be part of the team, mm -hmm. compared to, and that's compared to like playing individually. I've known people that have finished college and have intentions of going playing pro, and then they've stopped playing pro after a year, and you ask them why, and it's like, ah, it's just not as much fun as being on a team. Mm -hmm. it's just you're traveling by yourself all the time it's, it's, it's very lonely like we talked about earlier um, and I don't think the, the parents understand that yet and that's not for a lack like it's not from a fault on their part I think we have got to do a better, better job educating the coaches so they understand that we, we need to develop balanced athletes as well because it's they always take we know this from like coaches in general take a a quantity, not quality approach. And we've, we've got to flip that. And we've got to be able to give them these fundamental movement skills and patterns that they can develop at a young age through playing various sports, not just tennis, whether they want to play soccer and things like that and basketball, develop different perception reaction skills instead of just staring at a tennis court. Now, when you fully decide that you're going to give tennis a go, which may be around, probably happens a little bit earlier in, in tennis than, than other sports because it is such a specialized sport then you can go kind of almost all in to an extent on, on tennis. But I still think there's, there's abilities and the quality that you develop from spending time doing other sports, especially the social aspect, which is just as important, um, is going to be is going to be huge. So let's talk a little bit on that. Is there a difference between the, the singles player and the doubles players? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, if you look at just physical qualities, the... Uh, the singles players have obviously got much better physical quality and much mm -hmm. much higher aerobic capacity and things like that. To be honest, like we've had in the past one or two double specialists, and they just haven't done any conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of hurts me to say that a little bit, but they've just, while some guys have been doing conditioning, the doubles guys have just been doing some extra on-court work. It's a, if we're honest, it's a better use of their 20 hours a week. Yeah, sure. You know, we've got to pick and choose what, you know, what we should do with the guys here and, even some of the other guys who are like, that, that play singles, we take and choose what we do and where we put their, where we allot their hours. If there's some guys who have got, and I'm pretty happy with, they tick all my boxes, my KPIs. I'm going to move those into playing more tennis. All right, you can maybe take an hour from the weight room here and we'll put you on the court here with coach, because we need to work on your forehand, for example. That's a much better use of the time because at the end of the day, we're not here to become better weightlifters. We're here to become better tennis players. But are, are doubles teammates like buddy cops? In movies that complete each other's sandwiches, <laughs> <laughs> or you know what I mean, like in terms of like the just the mindset dynamic, do you come, are the less skilled tennis? Well, I don't want to like bait you into any like in general, not 
specifically at your institution, are are less skilled tennis players kind of pushed out to doubles or are there people who just enjoy the dynamic of doubles and then like loaded, like a lot of questions coming your way here, Chris, do doubles partners get recruited as doubles partners? Oh, you just opened the kind of worms. Yeah. And <laughs> if not, like what's the process? Like, could you be like, what if you were going in knowing uh, like, I'm just thinking of, like, buddy cop movies. Just a team player being recruited to be... I mean, there's many examples in other sports, mm-hmm. right? You have your... In the basketball, you got your stud all-star, but doesn't mean they play well with others. But then you got your teammate, a mm-hmm. uh, team player. So maybe you're just recruited as a doubles. I'm thinking, like, You shake still and got bake. eligibility, bro. Shake think, and bake. I'm thinking, like, partners who, like, they set up these... I don't know, I'm imagining much more elaborate doubles tandem then well i think we gotta actually go play tennis to figure (laughs) out if your dream state is a reality i'll hand it to chris to to school us on this well i mean where where do we go (laughs) i think from a recruiting standpoint you can definitely recruit people or players um, that specialize in doubles it may be a waste of a scholarship to an extent because (laughs) like with all due respect to doubles players like within college you don't win. You don't win the national championship, or you don't win a match um, by just winning the doubles point because there's only one point available. So you need to put all your kind of eggs in one basket and just go out with good singles players. Uh, I give, give you an example. We played national championship last year. We didn't win through all the rounds. We didn't win it. We didn't win a doubles point. We didn't win a doubles point until we got to play Texas in the final, and then we won the doubles point in the final, and we lost the match. Shit. <laughs> I know, right? So that's kind of the doubles. Like as coach said, the doubles isn't necessarily that important to us. It's nice to have. It's not we don't need to have it. Um, but yeah, we have got guys in in the past that we know maybe we could be a little bit stronger in doubles. We'll get this guy in because he's a good doubles doubles player. He'll complement the guys that we've got quite nicely. But it's not necessarily the, the be all and end all. Within the professional game, there's obviously a bit more of a synergy and like a chemistry between the two, and you've got to know each other's. Like you say, uh, finish each other's kind of sandwiches and things like that. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to be able to like be on the same page and have a good working relationship. Because if you don't have that relationship, just just like anything in life, you're not going to be able to be successful. You've got to, you really got to work together in that. And it's, I'm not going to say they're they're worse athletes by any means. Because I've been at the net and one of the guys has hit hit the ball pretty hard at me, and it's you've got to have some pretty hot reactions to be able to get that back nice and quickly. Um, so those guys are very, very elite in a, in a slightly different way to what the singles players are, for sure. In, I guess just touching on the, the doubles game while I'm thinking of it, can you have a, a special, specialist, like you said, can one guy go play and run the backside and the other guy stays up front, and are they forced to alternate depending on where the serve's coming, or can they get to their groove positions no matter what? You can, the setup in doubles is you play either forehand or backhand side, and you can only change at the end of the set. Okay. So you, you pretty much set. If you, if you go to good forehand, you're going to go for the forehand side. If your opponent, or sorry, if your partner's got a good backhand, he's going to stay on the backhand side. You can switch in the rally, but you've got to start the point back in that position every time. And then whether you kind of rush in there or come back to the baseline, that's kind of up to you. And that's more of a, uh, like a technical thing. Or a tactical thing, should I say, where you feel you like you can impose on your opponent a little bit more if both of you rush the net and take time away from them and things like that. 
but yeah, it's not quite as not quite as simple as uh, just being up there or back the whole time, unfortunately. Do you ever pull out the racket and show these kids a thing or two? I try sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I some of them some of them are surprised when they see me. I, I do, especially like in the off season and things. I try and pick it up a little bit. But I, I could easily go six, seven months without pitching a tennis racket. Um, mm-hmm. My girlfriend likes to play, so I pick up the racket with her a little bit, and we try and we try and play. And I, I'm teaching her to play, so that's quite that's quite good fun. And kind of keeps me in the groove a little bit. So I do try and pick up a, a racket with the guys and get into it if I can. If, if time allows and we're not obviously in a, a scheduled practice session. And I think it does give you a little bit of kind of respect a little bit. It's not always you know which way to hold the racket, <laughs> which way it's up, so to speak. And then you can actually like hold the hold the sh- uh, strokes and things. Because that's actually one thing that I've like, working with interns and things I've tried to emphasize to them is the actions you make in the weight room when you're talking about uh, how this I don't know, this movement here might help your backhand or might help your serve or whatever it's going to be. There's having that conversation, but there's demonstrating it as well. And tennis players talk a lot with their hands. And it's not, if you come in as trying to coach a tennis player and you're like, you, you pretend you've got a racket in your hand in like this almost, that's a telltale sign that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to tennis. So tennis players look at you and they get that straight away. So it's, it's more of playing with like an open hand and you can kind of, I don't know if you can see my actions on the camera there. But you can kind of you use the open hand on the backhand and the forehand, and you can kind of have that conversation a little bit through the subtleties of kind of using your hands to talk and explain your point a little bit. And I think they, they get that a little bit more. And that's something I try to teach uh, my interns and things like when you're talking with these guys, so they can kind of understand you a little bit more and gain that trust. It's these little nuances that can make quite a big difference. Yeah, I know ex- exactly what you're talking about. We as a, a guide to help connect coaches with their athletes. Uh, Carl Case wrote this article with the mission impossible connecting to the teenage female athlete. And one of our guidelines that we suggest to the coaches is have them coach you, teach them something on the sport, whether it's dribbling a soccer ball or how to set a volleyball, for example, or how to essentially hold the racket. You're almost presenting an opportunity to let that guard down for them to invest to show that you are investing in them. So that was one of our, our tips and guidelines for that Mission Impossible population. So if the intern is handed this team that we were talking about that's not necessarily as respected by the other coaching staff, you have an amazing opportunity to make a connection whether you played that sport or not by teaching how to hold a racket. I wonder if it's similar to a pickleball paddle. <laughs> I'm getting all hot and bothered here, McQuilkin. Might have to beat you down <laughs> in some ping pong. I'm ready because I got this this open hand float. You know how much I talk with my hands, Luke? It's because I'm a natural I do. stick ball person. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Too bad you don't talk with your mouth. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, I'd like to stick with the, the intern. So how do you take on one a semester, uh, one a year? And then what is that education process like for you do you have a a set curriculum or you kind of gauge on their experience and just let the education flow from you as a for like a natural teacher standpoint yeah so we take on two interns uh, per year um and that is they do follow an intern curriculum and that's run by one of our other members of staff um but as far as uh, the start of the year we this year we're going to slightly different we've got like interns a lot of the different teams um and 
I saw I saw mine turned down at the start of the year and I said, okay, this is kind of the system I'm using to an extent. This is kind of what's happening. If you've got any questions or you think that you can kind of offer anything to me or I'm doing something wrong, I shouldn't just literally anything, I'm like, you, you let me know. And we have this very open dialogue and he's helped me so much. It's great. He's helped us uh, with pretty much everything we do. I can trust him now. If I go through like our movement kind of categories and stuff with him and this is what I want to do and this is how we progress more and things like that. And I can say, okay, I'm going to be working on this part. If we're running, let's just say we run some complex, for example, we're maybe doing something on the on the squat rack and then we're going over to like a 10-yard sprint or whatever it's going to be. I can say, okay, I'm going to be over here working on the on the turf area, looking at some running mechanics. Can you just keep an eye on the guys over on the squat racks and you're going to deal with that part of the session? I'm going to deal with the, with the other stuff that's maybe a tiny bit more technical and I'm going to work on that with them. He can then gives him responsibility to work with the team. He's still under guidance, obviously. And he's just getting that more and more. Um, and as we go through, it's like, okay, today I think I want you to run, I want you to win this one. And I'm big on empowering the individual to do that. Because if you don't, and I don't I don't mind if he, if he makes a mistake, it just doesn't matter. It's just an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to grow. And I prefer him to take that shot than to miss, than to not take that shot at all. And um, and it doesn't matter how, how much you miss by it at the end of the day because you, you took a shot and you, you're still learning something from it. And that, that's the big thing. And I know like, going back to when I was at the University of Bath, that was a big part of my job there. I actually ran an intern program and I managed 17 interns. And kind of running that program, being quite a large intern program, looking after 400 student athletes is quite challenging, but you've got to pretty quickly upskill all of those interns, put them through that curriculum, taking them from essentially not being able to kind of do anything or communicate and then get them out on the other side where they're ready to take their accreditation and also impact the athletes they've been, they've been working with as well. Um, but I think it is very important to, to let them know that even though we're obviously safety first and everything else within the environment we're working in, this is a place for you, for you to learn and for you to develop. And if you've got any questions, don't let me hold you back and really get after it. And I mean, you, you've had to, you have to be drawing from your experience as an intern under your mentors, right? And pulling from the things that you felt worked for you, right? Oh, for sure. And I, that was one of the biggest things I got from, from Coach Brannigan back in the UK. He, he just let me let me loose to an extent. And when I look back now, I, I thought, oh, what was, like, what was I doing? Things like that. Like, don't get me wrong, he checked off the programs and stuff like that. And so there was, obviously, he wasn't too worried that I was maybe necessarily going to injure some more and things, but... That's that's the great bit. If you, unless you're thrown into the fire, you're never really going to learn. And I love putting myself in those environments where like you're challenging yourself to be pretty uncomfortable, because um, that's when you're that's when you're going to grow. And I remember my first day on the job, and um, Joel was he. Uh, I worked with rugby league my first year, and um, he said, "Okay, you got the rugby league team. There you go. Like get go get to it. And 20, 25 big burly guys like ready to go." And I was just like, oh, and it's essentially you've just got to shit or get off the pot, you know, you, you've got to get it done. And so you you step up and kind of clear your throat and then get your message out there. And soon as and if you say it with enough intent, you believe in yourself, then they believe in you too. And they realize, okay, this guy's the coach, we're going to listen to him. And that's the big thing that the message I try to send to a lot of the interns is don't be, be confident in what you do. Don't necessarily be hesitant. Even if it's the wrong thing, like the, the athletes don't necessarily know that. You've just got to be so confident in your ability and everything that you can deliver that they're going to believe you and drop on every word you say. And that's that's one of the most important things. You've got to have that confidence. 
Uh, and then if there is something not quite right or something we can do better, we'll have that conversation afterwards away from the athletes. We're not going to shout and kind of tear each other's eyes out in front of the mm-hmm. athletes or anything like that. We're going to have that conversation, which is a developmental conversation, an important conversation later on in the day. Mm-hmm. What were some painful learning experiences for you as a, a now mentor, right? In that transition that you had from being the intern, being the educated, being the apprentice to then take on as a mentor that maybe you just assumed that you'd cover, but eventually became now a point of emphasis each year with new interns. Um, I think that's, that's tough. That's a, that's a tough one. There's, there's numerous, <laughs> like you, you look back at it now and just little things, there's nothing that massively, that massively stands out at me. And like, there was, there was once when, um, there was once when, uh, Joel was, I was just eating, like eating in the weight room, didn't think anything of it. Just getting a quick snack, being on the, being on the weight room for however many hours and on the floor, sorry, how many of hours and all this stuff. I just eating a banana and I just put it on the side and I actually put it on the, on the dumbbell rack. And then, then, you can imagine what happens next. <laughs> you can't fucking do that. Coach just chews me out in front of everyone. <laughs> you better believe I never left a banana skin like anywhere near a waiting floor or anything ever again. Yeah, you're that turning you're turning red just thinking about it. I know, right? It's good. It's, it's those memories are coming back to me. But yeah, that was that was one experience that definitely comes to mind and keeping the weight room in, in tip top shape <laughs> and, and things like that. But that you got You got to. I guess that's something he certainly could have. Um, like tie, like tied up with you after the session, but it was in front of the athletes, right? Which I think yeah. like I get it because the message is for them as well. Like respect yeah. the equipment, respect the weight room. This ain't your mama's house. Stack them straight, stack them nice. I'll tell you once, I won't say it twice, right? You just, you got to lay down the law, man. And uh, sure. sometimes a, a, a young, innocent intern becomes the, the whipping boy on that lesson learned. For sure. I mean, if it never happened again, and if those if those athletes get the message, then it's, yeah. it's, from his point of view, it's it's job well done. And then I was obviously a bit embarrassed, but it never happened again. Sure. Uh, but that was I suppose lesson learned. Lesson learned at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was there's obviously as you go through and then look back now, you look back at old programs as you do, and you just look at things. Oh wow! Like what was I doing? How did I not give this guy rabbit or something? It's like huh. <laughs> the things that you kind of you look at and. You, you just learn from, but like you look at these experiences and then you're just very lucky to, to have had these experiences at the end of the day. Cause there's a lot of people that are in, in your shoes or would kill to be in your shoes to, to have those experiences and just to be able to do those internships. And like people are fighting teeth and they'll just get an internship at the moment. And I class myself as, as very lucky to be able to, to be able to do that. Um, but at the same time, I think you, you do get what you deserve and you, you if you fight kind of for what you want and you put yourself in the right position to be successful, you more you know, you're going to end up going in the right direction. What do you miss about back home? Not the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not the weather. Um, just the people. We've got a lot of friends back home. A lot of friends back home. I miss driving on the right side of the road, you know. But, uh, and one, one of the big things has got to be roundabouts. Yeah. You know what? We just had a, a buddy of ours in from Manchester and in a shopping center around here, we have a roundabout. He's like, Oh, look, you don't have to stop and look at everybody. And if, if no one knows what's going on, you just continue on, you know? There you uh, go. That's the thing. It gets me every time I'm going down the street and you hit the lights and you're just like, you know what? We sold this. 
around roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> and for those like for those uncultured individuals who have not had the pleasure of driving around in the UK or Australia, a roundabout is this little circle thing where people just don't stop. You've seen it. There's a huge roundabout in like almost every East Coast Bond movie. Yeah, uh, in, in Paris, East Coast cities, right? Is Paris the one with the big arch? Or is it a big yeah. roundabout? Right. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, but yeah, the intent is that you you get in, you don't have to stop, you just kind of yield, but you don't even yield, you just keep moving. Things just flow, right? Magical. Yeah. Yeah. It's now that you just drift around a couple times. Drift. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're fast and furious. Oh, I get driver. it. Uh, Chris, Luke, and I have actually been to Bath. Yeah, man, it was uh, beautiful. Oh, really? We had a great weather day. I don't know if you remember. When? No, I don't. Uh, so we, I guess, had an extra day or two when we were traveling to Manchester. We went to Stonehenge uh-huh. and then hit up Bath. So a good friend of mine used to be the national lacrosse coach for England. So I asked her, like, what do we got to do? Mm-hmm. And so Bath was... So it was on Stonehenge Day. Yeah. So it, Bath was her number one city to visit in England. So we took her advice and it was, it was pretty pretty. What... Uh, but you obviously don't miss English breakfast. You're, I would imagine this, the U.S. does breakfast better than the U.K. In your opinion, or you miss the the oh, that was the a beans bias, and bangers. Bias head shake. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Ah, oh. I don't know. As much as I love a pancake and things like that, but the waffles, it's got its place. But you can't beat a bit of good quality like Cumberland sausage and some some real bacon as well. I'm sorry, I don't want to. <laughs> Annoy any Americans listening, but like the real bacon's a big one. Yeah, with the with the eye, right? Like, so it's, you got the strip yeah. and like the eye in there. I'll give you that. Um, cheese, but, lots of cheese for breakfast, right? I can't remember. Uh, you can have you can have cheese for breakfast. You got like continental, but it's more like if you go to France and things like and, that, you get some croissants and things. Yeah. What about what about like isn't pudding a thing in the UK? Pudding's a thing. Yeah, yeah. not for breakfast though. Not for breakfast. Oh, what am I uh, thinking? Pudding, like pudding, blood? like a uh, pudding's a dessert. Essentially. Well, I was thinking like the blood pudding or whatever that is, like the oh, a um, what oh, you, what's it called? Like a where is yeah, that? I know, where I know what you mean, like a haggis. Yeah, it's haggis out of Scotland. Yeah. Okay, so oh, okay. maybe that's what I'm thinking. Is the Irish yeah. side? Um, yeah, man. I, I tell you, when I, whenever we're traveling to the UK or I guess anywhere, the biggest thing that that the rest of the world has not picked up on yet is Mexican food. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, 100%. Have we dropped this? <laughs> Not so even Mexico. I'm one like of our, the U.S. has got to figure it out. <laughs> one of our goals, Chris, when we travel is to go to find a Mexican restaurant, no matter where we are in the world. We've done South Korea, Mexican, mm-hmm. and then an Irish pub. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, who's? I mean, Australia? No, Australia is pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no one. Yeah, just the Mexican food's laughable internationally and if, if you're out there if you're an international listener and you ha- you're like you got to try this mexican spot in my country email cali at power <laughs> and let her know she'll deliver the message um no man it's it, like the biggest thing like the thing that i appreciate the most in very storied past man in terms of getting in this strength game and getting to where you're at now you're super accomplished is just making the leap like it's just a it's something that I think a lot of young professionals in whatever industry and even like seasoned professionals, they just don't make that leap, whether it is to work in another country shit, even in the U S like working in another city or in another state, people don't do, but getting out of the comfort zone and, um, 
man, could you imagine what, like, do you think back to what it would, what it would be like if you stayed in the UK and you just, you just didn't take the opportunity to go to another country and just kind of soak it all up. And especially in such an interesting time for us socially, uh, in the U S. Oh, for sure. I actually had this conversation with, with my intern the other day and, um, I was, I kind of told you asked about kind of my journey and things like that. So we, we talked through that. Um, but then I was saying that like, I could be in a, it could be a potentially comfortable job, but then it's where do you go from that job back home if you haven't made that jump? Um, but straight out of working at Radley College, I, like I said, I got that other job opportunity and I could still be potentially there. But then you don't get to work with loads of interesting people, interesting athletes, uh, experience these different cultures and, and things like that. And that, that's almost what money can't buy and, and things. You've got to put yourself out there. And if you're not willing to, to make that jump and challenge yourself, then... I don't think you can really expect to kind of progress. If you want to progress as a ladder, you probably can't expect to do that. And it's, like I said earlier, it's putting yourselves in those situations where mm-hmm. that's the only time you really grow. And if if you think, uh, and I actually said this to to um, my intern, he said, um, but you know, we're not worried about, about moving because he's looking at obviously graduate assistant positions and things like that. And I was like, yeah, the line if I said I wasn't worried. Every time I've moved positions, whether it be the same country or a different country, I've been like, not scared shitless, but I've definitely been thinking about, is this the right choice? Even when I started the job for the first few weeks, I've been like, is that the right choice? Because mm-hmm. you never you never know if it is the right choice, and you never know. The grass isn't always greener on the other side and things like that. Sometimes you've got to appreciate where you are. But then you've really got to try and just embrace what's happening and enjoy the experiences of what the, the kind of industry can give you to a degree and I think at the moment I'm, I'm enjoying living in, in North Carolina it's a, it's a beautiful place I'm working in collegiate athletics which I never thought I would be able to do as an Englishman um, I know there's one or two one or two English uh, coaches trying to get over here at the moment and they're asking me like how do I do that mm-hmm. and I, I'm not lying it's tough it's tough you've got to have some sort of in or you've got to have some sort of speciality for them to be able to get you a visa um, and I was very lucky on, on that front and I'll, I'll never kind of deny that you know yeah, and, and I guess going into, is this the right choice? You know, you the further, you, and going back even further, maybe 10 minutes ago, Chris, you, you mentioned something about like jockeying and positioning for opportunity, right? And I would venture to bet for most people, the most advantageous position for opportunity to present itself is far away from your comfort zone. And that doesn't mean a bad thing. Like you can be out of your comfort zone in really good position. Like, like you are, I feel like I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's probably a lot more comfortable back home with family and friends where, you know, everything, um, versus like, versus where you're at now, but you're still in a good position. And let's say it was a shitty opportunity and you're, you don't relate. You don't relate to the coach. You're even further away from that comfort zone, but you're, you're on high alert for opportunity. You're looking now. Right. So you're, you're somewhere, but you're looking. And I, I just think of a couple friends recently that have like, they made it, they jumped out, got in the wrong job, but it took them to another job. That's even, you know, a level up and it's outside the strength and conditioning industry, but it's like, man, to get, get going and get going on, you got to get out of that comfort zone. And it's such a like cliche, stupid thing to say. And I guess there is opportunity as well. If you stay like, in your niche. Like, so it's not the only way either, but there's a lot more stories to tell when you get out there, you know what I mean? Versus like center line guaranteed path. 
I don't know. And I guess, uh, man, there are a lot of young strength coaches. There are a lot of op- like adventurous opportunities around the globe. Oh yeah, yeah. We were rapping with Ron at Ron McKeefery at our our symposium uh, last year because we're we're dropping this in twenty twenty. Ah. Um, but no, essentially he has connections all over the world and knows how desperate uh, desperate may be the wrong word eager eager other countries are for experienced coaches. So it may be just a year or two as an intern or a graduate assistant, but that still equals experience that they have yet to take on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their athletes are introduced to the barbell for the first time from these, what would be labeled as an intern in the United States, but is an experienced coach. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of, hey, do I want to spend a year or two and an international country where you do not know the language. But as we've experienced with Nick Winkleman on a podcast, Mm -hmm. that was almost his test of his coaching and communication abilities was to completely uproot his family and move to another country Mm -hmm. to test, do these communication devices carry over Mm -hmm. to a sport that he never played in a country he's never been. Mm -hmm. Chris, man, it's been a good talk. You got anything else, McQuilkin? Um, Yes. I just want to give you, you spoke recently at a regional NSCA clinic. So any way to just bullet point what you spoke on and then any other speaking opportunities, engagements that you have coming up? Yeah. So at the the clinic, um, I spoke on physical preparation for tennis uh, and that was more predominantly based around the development of a college athlete. Um, and to be honest, I got into my, my methods around strength and power development and energy system development. Now, within, strength and, uh, within the energy system development, I feel across the board, and I know you guys had um, James Fitzgerald on recently, and he's obviously big into his, the energy system development and things like that. And I think we sing off a similar industry. I think people massively underestimate the conditioning element, the strength of conditioning. And that was a big thing I tried to talk about there. Um, I think I look at a lot of sports as an alactic aerobic sport. The alactic being the thing that you you can't really do without. That's your output. That's why speed kills at the end of the day. And then your aerobic is the, the system that underpins everything you do. And I, I think too much within tennis, especially, coaches try and just flog the kind of glycolytic system and really push those adaptations. And my message was to stop training as glycolytically. Maybe you need a little bit of it, but you don't need a lot. Because within tennis, tennis is a repeat sprint sport. You're going to train that system anyway. So let's let's fill the bucket around that. Typically, tennis players can be more powerful, just like every athlete throws a little bit more powerful. They can move a little bit better, and we can develop our aerobic system a little bit better as well. So we need to work our low-end aerobic and our high-end elastic, and then let the sport take care of everything else. And that was my, that was to an extent my take-home message because I do think that because what we see on the field is, or the call, sorry, is generally a shot or a rally of around seven seconds. Okay, so we think and you rest for around 25. So you look at that, you're like, ah, oh, repeat sprint sport. You actually look at the average rally length in tennis is a four shot. That's not very long at all. That's serve, return, one, two, done. Now, I know averages can be misleading, but I look into a lot of that data, and I'm like, okay, let's fill the buckets around that because they're already getting that repeat sprint aspect. Let's make our high day even higher. Let's really push the output end of it. 
in our movement patterns, and then we'll underpin through our aerobic system so we can replenish and resynthesize uh, ATP. So that was that was one of our main uh, take-home messages there as well, as well as actually on the strength and power side, looking to develop throughout the force velocity curve from that kind of high force, low velocity, throughout low, uh, high, sorry, low force, high velocity. And um, what we're essentially trying to say there is let's actually try to adhere to the, the principles of dynamic correspondence. Let's train around the same joint angles that we see on the core. Let's train the same neuromuscular pathways. And let's actually train the same contraction speed that we see on the core as well. Because too often we get too concerned with hitting maybe bilateral squats or whatever it's going to be. And it's nothing like what they're going to be experiencing on the core. So we do a lot of things. We've actually had some, some videos and the slides at the conference of things that we've been trying out this year uh, in terms of trying to tap into improving intermuscular coordination and tap into a children's law of reciprocal condition. How can we improve or increase the speed of relaxation of the antagonist muscle so we can actually turn the muscle on quicker to, to fire and, and produce more force when we need it? And I think that's something we can do more of and hopefully we can have more of a transfer and get these higher level neural adaptation on the court as well. That's something I'm quite quite passionate about. And I think I don't think it's done quite well enough at the moment. Um, and I think obviously you've got to have the athlete that's ready developmentally to be able to do that. Um, and that's kind of another story in itself. But I think that's something I tried to another message I tried to get across as well. Let's really understand the the kinematics of actually what's going on on the court and let's really influence that as a practitioner instead of just saying, oh, these are your sets and reps, this is what you're doing for. And I know Cal Dietz, who's influenced in my program quite a bit, has talked about time sets and things like this. You know, we try and we use quite a few time sets with some of our high-end um, kind of AFSM method, if you use Cal's terminology, um, within our programming. And for me, that's worked really well. I and mean, then so far, like this word, knock on wood, our, our results have been pretty good. Um, hopefully, as a result of that as well. Um, but that's there's some of the messages that, uh, messages sorry that I was trying to send. I was trying to say let's actually look at what happens on the court instead of just moving through these very generic patterns. If we're trying to actually have our kind of specialized prep, why are we still doing X, Y, and Z exercises that are obviously very generic? Why aren't we hitting the right muscle contractions and the right joint angles and things like that, and trying to actually enhance the the higher or try to get more higher level. Um, Neurological adaptations, which is what essentially we train for at the end of the day. That's where we really get our outputs. And as you guys know, like speed goes. The faster we can move, the better off we're going to be at the end of the day. And if, if I was to say to a tennis player, do you want 10 miles per hour added onto your serve? Not, there's not one tennis player in the world that's going to say no. Mm -hmm. The same if you say that to a pitcher as well. So then it's my job and other coaches' jobs to say, okay, how can we actually get these adaptations and deliver as well? And that's why one of our KPIs is. Um, Serve speed. So we try and monitor, monitor that weekly. Are we actually making a difference? Are we making an improvement to our serve speed? Is that something that's actually going up weekly, or are we just are we just hitting some reps, the reps in the in the weight room, and not making any difference? Um, I kind of went a little bit off topic there, but <laughs> that's something that I am that I am quite passionate about. Uh, apart from that, I don't think I've got any other other speaking. Currently, got any speaking uh, opportunities lined up? I'm due to go on to uh, Jaden Mayo's podcast at some time in the, in the next week or so, I think. Nice, sweet. So hopefully, that one will be that one will be coming out. We'll see what Jay's got lined up for us. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of all I've got. <laughs> nice, man. 
Sweet. Well, we'll uh, we're, we'll connect in July in person, and we'll share some beers and regat some trails of your uh, team season in tennis this spring. But everyone else, you can follow Wake Forest Tennis and root for them. That's right. You're a guy. You're a tennis guy. That's <laughs> there it. You go. Typecast. <laughs> well, he's, he's, our, he's our beacon for, for rooting for tennis. I like, I don't have a tennis allegiance. Now I do. Wake Forest tennis. A tennis of allegiance? Ten- <laughs> yes. Allegiance to tennis team. Yeah. Chris, man, take care of yourself. Happy holidays. Uh, what ha- If people would like yep. to get in touch with you, where How do, do we they find direct you? them? Uh, so, yeah, if you want to get in touch, more than happy to just drop me an email. So that's bore, B-O-R-T-H-W-J-K at W-F-U.edu. Or just type in uh, at Chris Borthwick, so K-R-I-S-B-O-R-T-H-W-I-C-K into Instagram. And then that's where I'm pretty much, I'm never really on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. Most of my stuff is through, through Instagram. So if you drop me a, drop me a line on there, and I'll be happy to get, get back to anyone. And if anyone has got any research or anything like that within tennis please shoot the lines and trying to work with different federations at the moment to pull in as much data cool. as we can so, so we can actually create norms within tennis because there's not too many of them at the moment yeah but if anyone out there has any good information that we might find useful or even if you don't think it's useful and you just think you've got something please just shoot me a line and i'd appreciate it beautiful and thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. That's it for this week. Until next time. Bye. See you. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you've got a tennis-related research article, now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you've got tennis-related research, you want to rap about strength conditioning, or you take issue with any of Chris's comments about America, he can be contacted on Instagram at Chris Borthwick. That's Chris with a K and Borthwick, common spelling. Until next time, bye!